2: Welcome back to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about knitting. Mark, you've are already you... made
3: that joke. Did I? Knitting? Yeah. Specifically knitting. Uh, it was some craft work. Oh, all right. Look, I don't. I don't want to say that all craft <laughs> work is the same, but you can just move it on. It's Like animal husbandry.
2: Gotcha. Semiotics. Taxidermy. Something. Taxidermy. Yeah. Welcome to Taxidermy R R Us. Mark, how are oh, you this my, week? My, Phil. I I was better until a few moments ago. Well, Mark, we have another video coming out this week, so that's kind of exciting. And we're going to talk about some board games today. We're going Let's to talk, do that. We're going to talk about the games we played this week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game, which is Reiner Knizia's Babylonia. Mark, what did you play this week? Yet more sessions of Spirit Island Jagged Earth. We have formed
3: locally here the Spiritual Society for Murderous Anti-Colonialism, or SMAC. And we've been continuing to explore more and more of the content. This, once again, has been a marvelous opportunity to see which spirits gel with your playstyles, which spirits don't, trying to find novel approaches. Because most of the spirits from Jagged Earth are of high complexity or very high complexity. There are a couple that are of medium complexity, and honestly, in comparison, they seem very, very straightforward. As opposed to the base game of Spirit Island and Branch and Claw, it really does seem like they're they're playing to the base, which is what you want out of a second expansion. I really think that if you're going to be having this level of content, if you have this level of granularity, you really do want to focus it and expect the fact that, well, these are probably people who are at least passingly familiar with most, if not all, of the content from the first two boxes. And so I really applaud the fact that they've decided to throw us into the deep end, and people who are very much devoted to the Spirit Island lifestyle, shall we say, are finding lots to appreciate in Jagged Earth. So that's all I've got to say about my continued experience under the aegis of smack.
2: Well, one day I'll have to revisit. I keep saying that.
3: Yeah, definitely Get- not with one of the spirits from Jagged Earth. That is, for, that is for
2: sure. That is for darn sure. Well, you and I got to play Mariposas. 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 It is about the migrating monarch butterflies, Mark. As, si. they, as they flap across... South America uh, no, <laughs> as they flap across Southern America through Atlanta and Houston and as they travel north and try to get south again. It's a great family game. This is a, a another Elizabeth Hardgrave uh, design and it's put out by AEG games. I have to say, let me start with the cynicism and then I can just proceed to
3: the things that I like. I definitely get the impression that AEG wanted to position this. As Wingspan, kind of? Because, so first of all, they have little component trays in Mariposas that are very, very much like the component trays that Stonemeyer puts out. It's the same form and function, and they're definitely not falling into the same trap that Stonemeyer did with Wingspan, because there are copies everywhere. I don't know if they overestimated demand, or if this is just a healthy distribution network. Because we haven't seen healthy distribution in board games for a long time. Usually it's, oh, there's this new, oh, it's sold out. Yep, Sorry. Sorry, uh, you should have pre ordered, you should have kickstarted seven years ago. But anyway, I, I agree. I think, in terms of very approachable, tactical, action efficiency games, Mariposas is great for a very, very light intro thing. I would say if it had substantive player interaction, it has vanishingly little, and what there is is, is very minimal. If it had substantive player interaction, I would say that this would be a very quality intro family game. As it is, I found it very pleasant. I have nothing substantial to complain about other than the absence of, of player interaction. The scoring conditions were cool. Every season you have a different scoring condition and you get, say, five points flat if you, all your butterflies are north of Houston and then two points for every butterfly in the East Coast, stuff like that. And it really forces you to wonder about how you're going to accomplish all these geographical challenges with your hands of cards. Now, the action cards aren't particularly interesting. If I, oh, here, Here's what I would like. Honestly, and I, I think this would be great. I don't know if this will happen. I don't know if this is an AEG plans. If there were an expansion that made the action cards a little bit more robust, most of the action cards are two moves of two spaces, or three moves of one space, or one move of four spaces, one move of one space, stuff like that. Slightly more complicated, interesting action cards, a little bit of a larger hand size, maybe a display from which to draft, and a touch of player interaction in terms of positional blocking. Now, granted, this would be very athematic to the best of my understanding, Monarch Butterflies are not in the habit of cordoning off ideal territory so as to compete with other strains of Monarch Butterfly. But anyway, if these things were to happen, I would say that this would be a top-tier intro game.
2: You at- want to weaponize Monarch Butterflies. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> That's putting
3: it awfully strongly.
2: But there could be a lot of gamey things that you could do to try to make sure that there were a little more interaction than there is. Yeah, it seemed, it's very... I'd say very bland. It's like you have a choice of two cards, which, like you said, are almost identically the same. And you, you don't have much, you know, you're moving butterflies. every. You know what I mean? There's not much choice there to do things. I
3: didn't find it bland. I enjoyed feeling the pressures of getting my butterflies to the right place at the right time and the
2: concomitant pressures of breeding with respect to getting the necessary tokens to breed. Oh, on, the, on the subject of tokens, there's an awful lot of token pushing. It's like, move, get tokens. Spend, you know what I mean? Like the, the busy work that, we, that I often talk about is like, you know, you get tokens, you spend tokens, you get to, You know, it's just back and forth.
3: You draw a token after every move, and sometimes you spend tokens to breed. That's it. Uh... <laughs> I don't know why you have such... Look, I don't think it's a fabulous game. As I say, I I th- no, I'm not saying it's a terrible game. I'm just saying that there's a lot of you know, I seem busy to en- work. I seem to have enjoyed it a lot more than you did. I felt... I was very conflicted because I very much like the fact that Elizabeth Hargrave instantaneously became a very prominent designer with a lot of clout. I think she uses her platform extremely well on social media. And I very much approve of her prominence and her authority... I just really, really, really strongly disliked Wingspan. And so and I'm very, very glad that I'm uh, so much in favor of her second published design. Without any reservation, I can appreciate the fact that she's in a position of prominence. I very much enjoyed Mariposas. Not really my style of game. I'm not really interested for, in family games without any interaction. But given that, I, I quite enjoyed it. A mean, me gusta Mariposas, Michael. ¿Por qué no? ¿Por qué no, por, por Michael? No.
2: Sí, sí. All right, that's Mariposas. Mariposas. By Elizabeth Hardgrave and distributed by AEG Games.
3: Walker, we played Tekenu, Obelisk of the Sun by Daniele Tashini uh, and you, David Torkson. You wrecked
2: my intro for that. It's called Busy Work of the Shifting Cardboard.
3: Okay, I'm glad to get a sense of your opinion on the game. Would you care to elaborate?
2: Oh, it's it's just what I just talked about in Mariposa. It's like it's it's just shifting tokens around continuously. It's like I go here to get some tokens. I go over here to spend those tokens. It's tokens in, tokens out. So many different places to go. Okay, so but- many ways to get points. Well, that
3: part I thought was problematic. But let, 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 let's circle back to the tokens in, tokens out problem. Why do you think that this is a bigger problem in, say, Tekenu... Or even Mariposa, when compared to a game that we both like, for example, Voyages of Marco Polo.
2: Voyages of Marco Polo. It just means it's, there's there seems to be re- different reasons to spend those tokens on. Like in Mariposa, there is only one reason mm-hmm. to get the tokens, and that is to to make to sweet, sweet, sweet butterfly love. Sweet, sweet butterfly love. And in Tekenu, it's it's usually just to to build statues, right? But in, in like a Marco Polo, there's a whole bunch of different ways to spend it or, you know, keep them for victory points or I don't know. It just seems a lot of, a lot of less of in and out than in Marco Polo or other games. than there is in these two, in these two games that we're talking
3: about. Now, I don't want to speculate that this is just because you take more pleasure in wood over chits, nor do I want to speculate that this could just be a distinction without a difference. I'll just take you, take it to face value and smile and nod, not understanding. And let's move on. So I agree with you very much that Tekenu Obelisk of the Sun is more trouble than it's worth. But for me, it's not so much about busy work. It's more that this is complexity for the sake of complexity. And it is also overcome with a general sense of sameness. So this is the same design team that brought us Teotihuacan. And we've played, over the years, a fair number of Daniela Teschini designs and a fair number of David Turte designs. And they're starting to sort of kind of feel the same. They don't necessarily echo, but they certainly rhyme. And I would vastly prefer to play pretty much any one of their designs over to Kenyu again. Just to give an example, this is one example, and I'll I'll elaborate it with the specific circumstances of our playing. You go to an action space to build a statue. It's like, okay, well, at least, when compared to the buildings, the buildings have various costs, depending on where you put them. At least the statues, they all cost the same. You build a statue, where do you want to put the statue? Well, you can put the statue in one of three places. And where you put the statue will have three radically different effects over the course of the game and will trigger three radically different kinds of scoring conditions. And, uh, no. No. And when you repeat this for the buildings, and you repeat this for all the other things, I would rather have tracks on tracks. This game basically only has a couple of tracks to worry about, but there, the tracks are throughputs for action cards. You can't buy cards unless your track is high enough. As opposed to... The pr- problem that I normally have with tracks, for example, in Teotihuacan, where it's like, okay, advance one space, I get a cacao. Advance another space, now I get a stone. Advance another space, now I get two points. Now I advance space, I get the... There's all these weird, disconnected little bits of nonsense when you're chasing up these five different tracks. And I I, I prefer that over what was going on in
2: T- can you over <laughs> the of the Yeah, it just seems there's a lot more procedure than actual game playing, right? You have to, like balance your scale, like, you know, every time you took two turns and you're rolling dice and you're shifting around to make sure they're in the right, you know, light or darkness. And then you're, you are balancing your scales and you, then you're going through that, what, eight step scoring process. I believe and, it was only seven, if sorry, I recall. Sorry, a mere, a breezy sorry, seven
3: different scoring. Sorry. And I, here's I, the I, thing. We were playing with people who had played several times before. This was our first playing, but we'd played with people. Uh, collectively, there were about 10 plays under their belt, I think. And every time a build... This was not just during the scoring rounds. This was every time a building got built, every time a, a a plinth got placed, every time they had to go through the little flow chart of, okay, now I score one point per this and that, and one point for this other thing, and wait, what does this thing mean again? It's like, seriously... Why bother at this point? I said when we reviewed Teotihuacan, and I stand by this, one of the things that I liked about it, it was relatively focused. You can chase up the tracks if you wanted to, but at the end of the day, you were building a temple. And that's where an, a lot of thing was going to go on. Going back to Voyages of Marco Polo. You're fulfilling contracts and you're traveling. That's basically what you're getting your points from. And when it's this scattered and this difficult to remember what anything does, it all just gets overwhelmed at a wash of, oh, I'm getting five points now for this thing I did? Okay, sure, fine. I, I did not enjoy the experience remotely and I'd vastly prefer the other outlet do you know what honestly i this is going to be a bit of a stretch but it felt to me a little bit like Roman roll but worse because Roman roll as well is a dice drafting game where you then use the dice sometimes kind of to influence your actions but sometimes not really sometimes the dice matter and sometimes they don't which is occasionally frustrating but at least in Roman Roll, you have more focused scoring conditions, and it would hard to be less focused than Kenyu, and more substantive player interaction because your buildings would have butt up against other people's building conditions, and they were jockeying for building spots, and you were jockeying for competition spots, and sometimes your what you could conquer was being opened up by somebody else doing something. I enjoyed Roman Roll more than you did, but I think you have to you have to agree, at least Roman Roll wasn't Tekenu Obelisk
2: of the Sun. Oh, 100%, because there's like eight things that we didn't talk about. Like yeah. tech tech cards, destiny cards, happiness track, population track.
3: Well again, things we've seen <laughs> in a whole bunch of other Tashini and designs, either singularly or together. I mean it's just all this stuff. But, but, <laughs> I was I was very optimistic about Tekkenu. the theme, superficially is about Egyptian mythology and nominally the action selection feeds into this notion of your judgment in the afterlife where you will be evaluated according to the code of Ma'at and on one end of the scale your your heart with all your evil deeds would be on it and on the other scale would be the feather of Ma'at repre- representing the closest thing they had to a goddess of justice kind of sort of almost and if the feather were heavier than your heart then you could pass on into the, in the next life and be ruled over by Osiris but if your heart were heavier than the feather well then you got fed to the crocodile and who doesn't love a good story and ending with being fed to a crocodile. And so so the action dice were supposed to, uh, first of all, it mostly didn't matter. (laughs) And secondly, there's no crocodile. How could
2: there be no crocodile, Walker? I know. That makes no sense.
3: Yes. Part of, I, I think I deserve some kind of award for keeping my cool together because the last time I felt this kind of upset about a wasted theme and a sort of generic blandness was very different game, but Champions of Midgard. Jamie, the Midgard is just a generic kind of worker placement-y thing without much to to recommend it. Here, this is just slightly more medium-heavy resource efficiency kind of, well, I could do this to get two points, but if I did this other thing first, I'd get this tech, and then it would be worth three points, so maybe I should do that. Oh, but then if I keep doing that, I won't be able to build this other weird thing that requires this other... Meh.
2: No. (laughs) Meh. No. Well, hopefully we'll get some more plays in it. Maybe I can convince <laughs> you to uh, to play it once or twice more. Once. Why Why do you want to play it more? Well, I think we should give it more than a single chance. Why? We, 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 dis- we discard
3: lots of games after a single play. But I painted it. <laughs> <laughs> Look, we discard lots of excellent games after a single play because of time constraints. It's true. Why can't we at least give, get some benefit out of the hyper review schedule that we have? and say we've done our time with Tekenu, and now we can move on.
2: That is Tekenu, put out by Board and Dice. Now on to Floaty Giant Deathhead, or known by other people as Chucky Mags or Carlos Magnus. This is a great old-school game, Mark. It's back to budding heads and, and player interaction up the wazoo, as they say. None of this turtling, playing your own little game, trying to maximize points. This is knocking people out, making sure you are getting your castles out. And it's one of these great games where once you get all your castles out, you win. There's no you know time constraints. There's no you know one person getting away with the game. It's all about getting your castles out.
3: Yeah, back when there were any number of weird confrontational Euro games with relatively parsimonious rule sets. Carolus Magnus is by Leo Colavini. Leo Colavini is definitely good for the occasional strange euro. And Carolus Magnus for me is a great palate cleanser. We first ex- experienced it deep in the days of pandemic when we tried it on yukata.de, and that is where we originally associated Charlemagne the Great. With a giant floating death head, because instead of a pawn in the Yukata implementation, he's a very, very bright red kind of disembodied head that floats around and sends his laser-like gaze over different territories. (laughs) So that's where that's coming from. As to why I occasionally call him Chucky Mags, Carol Big Big, Karuli Maguni, I don't know. It's just a mental illness, I suppose, but... Careless Magnus is definitely the kind of thing that I want to pull out every once in a while. It's not a perennial mainstay. I don't think it's top tier game, but as a palate cleanser, as a corrective to a lot of some of the more recent trends in Eurogaming that I don't like. As you say, it is absolutely peerless in that it is very confrontational, and you don't ever feel like you're engaged in an optimization puzzle. You're involved in a tactical knife fight where you have a very, very limited number of actions, and you have to outmaneuver your opponents. Yeah, it's a
2: completely no-luck Euro. There's a little bit of luck with you know the drafting of the cubes, but other than that, you know exactly what's going to happen, and if you don't plan ahead, then you're done. There
3: are multiple levels of play, and that is one of the reasons why I think I really don't do well at Carolus Magnus. I think the best game I ever played of Carolus Magnus, I was within like three or four turns from winning (laughs) when somebody else won the game. But in Carolus Magnus, there's trying to figure out what you're going to do on your turn and trying to scrabble out a placement or two there. But you get to look at everyone else's supply and know for certain what they're going to be able to do on their turn. And if you're really eating your Wheaties, like many of the people who pants me on a regular basis, if you play with the variant where you're drafting cubes, which we do, you get to look at what's available in the draft pool and say, okay, I, I, I think I know what I could do next turn, and I think I know what everyone else can do next turn. And that's really, that level of depth is really one of the reasons why I think there's a pretty good skill ceiling for Carolus Magnus, even though you say it's no luck. I mean, the cube supply is driven by luck one yeah, way or the other. For sure. Which is which is occasionally problematic, but not really. It feels very different with two, three, and four. I think it's. I, think I prefer two and four, but it's one of those great things. I like having opinions on controversies. Like, I remember uh, this was about 10 years ago. I decided I just wanted to have an opinion on the great controversy about whether or not you should marinate your chicken in buttermilk before you fry it. So I, I like fried chicken for a week. The answer is yes, you should uh, marinate the butter. You yeah, no, well, look, <laughs> but there's a controversy, right? There was a controversy in Japan whether you want to have your tamagoyaki with mayonnaise or with soy sauce. So I like having opinions on these things. Anyway, uh, Careless Magnus has a similar dynamic. Some people swear by it with three. Some people swear by it with two. Some people swear by it with four. I definitely prefer two and four over three, but I haven't gotten to the point of preferring two or four yet. I'll get back to you later with more experience. I was going to
2: say, not only does it feel different, it's actually played differently on the different player accounts. That's true.
3: Well, minor rules changes, yeah. but it, it's mostly, I think, in terms of how it feels, in terms of the competition for control, because it's fundamentally, it's like the way it's presented is kind of sort of as a as a, as a fighty game. But it's kind of sort of really more like a stock game in that you're, in quote-unquote, investing in various things. You think it should be rethemed. Like like many good Euros, it could be rethemed. You think it should be rethemed to a virus-type thing, as or I recall. Or it
2: some sort of thing that makes the, the – it has this cool mechanic where if you control two territories beside each other, they sort of merge together. And right, it gives which you a is not what defense. viruses do. They do quite the opposite. True. I, well, I meant like an amoeba or – some oh, okay, sort of, yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah.
3: I think the more natural theming is just a, a bl- another bland theme instead of the bland generic European history theme. You could have a bland generic
2: business theme where you're investing in different companies and the companies merge. True. Or Dewey and I were sort of sitting talking about it. I was thinking about packs of zombies and you want them to <laughs> you want them to merge together <laughs> into a giant horde of zombies, and you're putting in you know, zombie you know fatties and leaders and you know. Making your horde stronger.
3: I will because, consent. Because there's
2: s- hardly any zombie games out there, I think. I'm trying to, you know, I'm this struggling would be the first think I think, I think yeah, this exactly. would be
3: the very right first. Tell you what, I will support this retheming, this conceptual retheming, because you could probably just do it with the components that are already there if they are zombie bees. All right. If sure you can enough, make swarms of zombie bees, then you might have me there.
2: So that just makes more sense right there, anyway.
3: <laughs> and that is Carlos Magnus. It's it's Carolus Magnus. Shh. You, you're probably still thinking about mariposas. Carlos, que gusta mariposas. We've continued our campaign of My City for an incredibly simple polyomino placing game. Reiner Knizia just manages to make it engaging. I will say, the last envelope was possibly my least favorite of the envelopes so far. Not because the formula is getting old. I am perfectly happy to get pantsed over and over by you in My City. Uh, we're we're now at the point I think very clearly where there is no point in a competitive sense of finishing the campaign. We could call it now. There's no way for me to win. But that's okay. We're not playing it for determining the victor. We're playing it because we're enjoying the game. But in the latest envelope we opened, without giving any spoilers, it attempted to introduce a little bit more player interaction in the sense of competing for spots on the boards. It felt artificial. It felt unsatisfying. In other words, it felt unworthy of Knizia. It didn't really feel like... The kind of substantive player interaction that a lot of his games are characterized by, and it felt like a token effort. True, it's like
2: it was like sort of you're having fun doing this puzzle thing. Now throw all that out the door. Now race to do this while not you know while not having fun because I want you to <laughs> well, that's, have some sort of player interaction. You know
3: what I mean, that's a little bit stronger than I'd think, but it, it's more that the incentives didn't seem properly calibrated to me. It was an additional constraint that seemed like, in hindsight, it was wasted effort. That was more my, my consideration. It didn't ruin the fun for me. It just felt like the other modules that added bits that were fun and cool and seemed worth it and worth the mental effort and mental headspace that it took considering seemed to be at odds with
2: these developments in My City that just seemed superfluous. Agreed. And that is My City by Reiner Knizia. Now I'm going to go by to something completely different and talk about a tile lane game by Reiner Knizia. This one is called Intego, Mark. And if anyone is familiar with Tetsuo... This uh, is just zero. zero. This is very similar. You're placing tiles down with paths that all connect to each other, but this one is a hexagon system. And I think it just seems to work a lot better than it does in Zero, And I enjoyed it a lot more... If you love Cyril, you'll love this one much better. The, the tile placement had way more meaning and had a lot more player interaction and a lot more table talk. Well, I shouldn't say table talk because you're not really supposed to have table talk, but, but uh, uh, banter, more table banter than, than you would in a normal game of this ilk.
3: Well, what I thought was particularly cool, because I've played Turo, I've played Metro, and I've played some other of these, you know, root lane games where you're placing out roots for things. And what was really cool is there are these scoring zones all over the board. And your job, your goal, is to get various gems to these scoring zones. But every scoring zone is shared between two players. And so I have to be very careful about who scores what. And there's an emergent kind of politics going on. And I don't want to drive all of my points towards the same scoring zone, because then I know that whoever I share that scoring zone with has a better chance of winning than I do, especially if they're directing all their efforts towards maximizing their score, and I'm just helping them out. That part I thought was great. And it really did pay off in terms of the playing of the game. I thought that, again, in the context of really light, approachable, family-appropriate games... Indigo is exactly what I'm looking for, as opposed to Mariposas that doesn't really have any player interaction. In Indigo, it's all player interaction. You cannot do anything by yourself. Everything you do affects several other people at the table. Now, the actual root placement was very simple. Uh, visually, it's appealing. You get these lovely little paths, and it looks very convoluted, but it's still very visually engaging. The tile variety is minimal because there, there's only so many different permutations you can have. And with the rules as written, you only have a one-tile hand. It was reminiscent of Kakasan, of actually. And my first impulse, as with all things, like, well, can't we just have a two-tile hand or something? Maybe even a three-tile hand? But my first instinct always with First Place is to trust the published rules, especially when it's Reiner Knizia. So we played with the published rules, and the actual tactical element of placing the tiles was far less interesting to me than the emergent political elements of the various scoring zones. So I was pleased with Indigo. I'd been wanting to play it for a while. I don't necessarily think it's even amongst, well, I'll be talking later about how to rank various Reiner Knizia tile laying games. But I'm glad to have tried it. I don't know if I'll be going back to it necessarily, but for very, very approachable and visually appealing tiling games, it was it was
2: very nice. Yeah, I liked the little end game bit at the end. There's there's a bunch of green gems in the middle with a single blue gem and the green ones go out first and then the blue one last which is worth more points. And I liked the, the timing aspect where That was really cool, yeah. Where you have like t- you have you have two paths that might score for you and you and you sort of want to push to get the or maybe even for someone else. You yep. want them to grab the green one, and then you grab the blue one at the very end. I, I really like that part of the game. That was interesting.
3: Yeah, that timing element was really cool, and you exploited it really well. And as I recall, that was your margin of victory.
2: Exactly. Yeah. And
3: no, again, very simple formula, very, very simple play, a couple little tweaks that really elevate it. In other words, uh, what you would expect from a Exactly. And that was Intego,
2: and it's put out by
3: Ravensburger Games. Finally, for me, I got to play a game called Starlink. This is something that Walker's been talking about for a while. This is by Marcus Slavicek and Arno Steinwinder. It's put up by Blue Orange Games. Blue Orange Games, I've got to say, every game they've been put out has been very, very affordable in the best way and quality, functional components. And I stress this because Starlink really needed them. This is one of those games where if the components didn't work, the game would fall apart. What you have is a star field, a star map. Uh, you know, very dark blues with little bursts of white, and you have to draw on it. And immediately when you started explaining the rules, and I saw the board, I'm like, this could be a disaster. The dry erase markers are white, and they work fabulously. And it produces a beautiful little star chart, because it's a drawing game very much like variations of Win, Loser or Draw, or Pictionary, or a dime a dozen. The conceit here is that it's uh, you're drawing constellations, and you have to draw straight lines between various stars in the star field, and have people guess what you're trying to draw. This fundamental formula, draw something and have people guess, I hate. I, I, I don't like drawing, and I don't like guessing what other people are drawing. This was my favorite favorite version of that formula.
2: What did you think, Walker? I loved it. Because you sort of, you look at your little your little word, and it says something like fish. I can draw fish. <laughs> no problem. Fish are easy. I've been drawing fish all my life. Have you really? No.
3: <laughs> okay. But... but, but because i don't know what you do when i'm not around walker i could just easily be like oh well that was done recorded a podcast time to draw some fish
2: (laughs) you envision your fish and you say i could connect these dots and you start (laughs) connecting the dots and you finish what you think is a fish and you look at it and you don't even know what it is yourself (sighs) yep and and it's already on there and there's not much you can do about it and it's like Maybe I can modify it. I'll start drawing these triangles around it because <laughs> they'll think those are bubbles. And, and
3: <laughs> oh, that's what was going on.
2: They'll, they'll think, ah, that is obviously a fish. No one, no one thought it
3: was it's a, fish. it's a surprisingly effective conceit in terms of leveling the playing field because you can't draw freehand anymore. You're obliged to connect the dots. The, the card I had the most success with was Snowman. And yeah, can I draw a circle? No, I cannot draw a circle. But then again, when playing Starlink, no one else can either. So I drew three blobs on top of each other that were roughly growing in size, and someone was able to guess Snowman. There you go. That works. And yeah, you outsmart yourself. You figure, oh, this is easy to draw or hard to draw. Well, given the Starlink concept, it's it's, it's sometimes harder. And we saw... I saw the the snail was very impressive. Now, we kept guessing sled. Yes, we didn't guess We didn't guess snail. But after it was revealed, it was like, ooh. In hindsight, it was very, very impressive. Yeah, and and again, I, I can't stress this enough. If the markers didn't work... If, this, the, the, if the stark white dry erase markers didn't function, if they didn't look right, if they failed to be discernible, then the game would fall apart. It, the entire conceit would fail. And I should also mention their commitment to the conceit extends past that into the scoring as well. After you draw the little constellation, if it's successfully guessed, someone has to label the constellation next to it. And you get a bonus point if the entire constellation fits inside this weird telescope counter. Which is just a cute little bit of nonsense that really helps tie the theme together in a themeless party game. As I say, I hate this format of game. I hate drawing. I hate guessing what people are drawing. Of the many varieties of games like this that I've played, this was my by far my favorite.
2: Yeah, it's funny. And if you watch the unboxing, there's a funny thing, too, where it's one of the first card I pick up, it said robot. It's like, oh, I can draw a robot. But then once you're putting it, like, you're connecting the dots and you're making this blocky, you know, human-shaped figure... Then it's like,
0: <laughs> you know I mean? it's like how do sure. you, it's like a man. You it could it's be.
2: Anything. always going to be blocking, how, how right. Do, you not know that it's a robot as opposed to anything else. Anyway, love it. And that is Starlink by Blue Orange Games. And those are the games we played this week. And now on to the news and why it doesn't matter. Speaking on news that doesn't matter, HeroQuest. Who yeah, asked, who asked for it? That being said, we've been talking a lot about hype on the guild this week. And that this this they've done a great job, I think, of building the hype. They've got the standard timer on there, the countdown days and hours until the big announcement of what HeroScape is going to be. HeroQuest. I keep saying HeroScape. Of what Hero That's a very telling Freudian clip though. Hero Quest is going to be. So those who lamented the loss or even want Hero Quest back, then you you're going to get something.
3: Fifteen years ago, I might have given I don't know half of a crap because <laughs> there was a there was a dearth of adventure type dungeon crawly things now to be to be entirely clear uh hero quest was kind of before my time i grew up poor and i didn't have access to things like board games when i was growing up and so when hero quest was released i wasn't in the hobby i didn't have access to things like that and i it was never part of my hobby re-education i played warhammer quest the original when I was immersing myself in gameplay history. So I don't have any particular associations with HeroQuest. The associations I do have, though, are with Avalon Hill, because this is all part of the Avalon Hill brand name, which has more or less meant nothing since Wizards of the Coast acquired it a while ago. But the Avalon Hill brand name is being shifted around and it's been sold, and this is is all associated with the HeroQuest stuff, because it's nominally an Avalon Hill game. Now, does this mean that there's a possibility that Avalon Hill is going to be a thing again? Maybe. A very, 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 very tiny possibility. And I will hold out for that hope.
2: <laughs> and that is my hero quest news.
3: Dungeon Fighter is going to be reprinted. Dungeon Fighter was a very strange co-op dexterity game put out from... Italy, whereby you had to bounce dice off of a target and then landing on other targets in order to do de- damage to monsters. In addition to being weird, which we like, and being a an dexterity game, which we like, it was also brutally hard. It was real hard.
2: <laughs> yeah, because it wasn't just you know bounce the dice; it was like do it under your leg or around your back. Oh, I or, found it hard even or without s- the modifications. Slide them off your head, or it was all sorts of silly ways to to project the dice down onto the table. Well, it was, it was having to bounce it, a die
3: by its very nature. It has to land just right in order for it to bounce reliably. Now, their D6s, of course. If this were D10s, forget it. it was, from our experiences with the excellent Flick Fleet, D6s are much easier to control than D10s. But anyway, I i enjoyed its attitude, at least. I liked its approach. Uh, the art style is very characteristic and, and, and whimsical. Anyway, it's coming back. There were a number of expansions, and now they're going to consolidate it into two base game boxes. They're going to be running a Kickstarter for it, of course. So Dungeon Fighter is back. A couple of releases from Ludo Nova that are coming up that I'm looking forward to. One of them is Sumatra, which is going to be a set collection game from Reiner Knizia. It has some in- potentially interesting looking tempo mechanisms and pushing your luck. When Reiner Knizia does things with push your luck, I pay attention because it's one of those nice little things that he, he tosses on top of-, of otherwise solid games. Like, for example, in Raw, which I think is the best push your luck game ever made. And also from Ludonova, they're going to be pulling out a game called Polynesia. This is by Pierre Sylvester. Pierre Sylvester is a fascinating designer who released the maddeningly strange and thoroughly compelling King of Siam, then re-released As the King is Dead, and re-released again As the King is Dead not too long ago by Osprey Publishing. Polynesia is a game about escaping a volcanic eruption, which is, you know definitely gets you a a, a sort of a visceral appeal of getting your people where they need to be rather than just a couple points here and there
2: so it's like a a fireball island variant
3: (laughs) no it does not look to be like that and this actually uh feeds into our last bit of uh, my last bit of news which i'll get to later which is why uh polynesia entered my radar in a serious way but walker what else you have to tell us
2: well we're talking about nostalgia with hero quest i have nostalgia about these magazines I got as a child that had would have this elaborate collage of, of like a cityscape, you know, with all these intricate little drawings of people doing different things. And there'd be a little list on the bottom that would say like, you know, count how many balloons or how many street actors can you find, right? And I remember having a great time. Well, there is a game, Mark. There's a game? There's a game. It's called Micro Macro Crime City. And it's this gigantic map that you're going to lay out paper map. You're going to lay out on the table. And it is one of these giant collages. And what they've done is they've put all these intricate crime scenes and, and things that you can find. And not only that, you can go online and you'll do like a, like a demo of one. And I did it. It's, it's super interesting (laughs) and fun. It's like you find where the murder scene was and they have like multiple drawings of this guy. So you can follow how he went through the city and you know, uh, why, You know, then the murder happened and then where the murderer went and where he hid the weapon and and then you go all the way back because you got to figure out why he murdered him in the first place, how he knew he had all this money and it's going to be really fun. I'm definitely going to get it because like I said, I have fond memories of this whole sort of genre. It's black and white, but still, I think it's going to be super fun.
3: So this is basically an elaborated forensic version of Where's Waldo?
2: Yes. Okay. So, so in the, in the online one, it was a little, a little bit better. would be, I think it might be better online, but I'm not sure because you just click and it says, yes, you're correct. And the actual thing, you it's going to, you know, flip up a card. It'll say, you know, find this particular thing or whatever. And then there's going to be the storyteller. So everyone's going to sort of look and say, I think we found what they want. And you look at the map coordinates. So it'll be like N five, right? And then the storyteller looks and, you know, tells you whether. So this is co-op with a game master. That's right. You know, and the and the game master will tell you whether or not you know you got it right or wrong. I think, I think the game master also gets to participate, but only okay. one person is going to look to see if you're right or wrong, and then I see. So
3: everyone gets to play, but there's some possibility that one of the players gets to be spoiled if the group guesses wrong. That's correct. Well, that just means that there's extra stakes for one player. <laughs> <laughs> it sure does. We can't let Sandy down. If we guess wrong, then Sandy gets eliminated. <laughs> That's right.
2: Looking forward to it. It should be out soon. Micro Macro Crime City. And definitely try, try it out. I'm going to send Mark the link so he can put it in the description and you can play your own little demo of it. And just lastly, Trois Dice is coming out. It looks interesting. It's got a lot of good buzz. I'm going to read the rules. It's and, a Roland Wright walker. I know, Mark. Look, the way things are going, that's all that's going to come out next year. Yeah, ro- Roland Wright's and Vitaliserta. That's exactly. all that's left in Euro Game Design. I'm telling you, you're going. we're going to. It's going to be all over. Next year, it's going to be Tigris and Euphrates, Roll and Write version. I'm telling you, it's going to be awful. (laughs) Roll and Write's The Death of Board Gaming, my new essay.
3: Finally, this is an episode that ends in five. We'll be brief. The reason why Polynesia entered our radar is because an overlord told me about it. And here's the thing. If you're an overlord or a commissioner in our Patreon, we do whatever you tell us to. And so... (laughs) We'll find the game, we'll talk about it. This week, I'm sending out copies of Spirit Island, Jagged Earth, and My City to Patreon backers, because they wanted them, and when they want something, we give it to them. And set up Trickerion last week, next week I'm going to be sending out a copy of Iwari Deluxe Edition. Anyway, on top of that, every week there's bonus content available on our Patreon, so do give it a look. And if you're an Overlord or Commissioner, and you hear us talk about a game and you want it, let us know,
2: and we'll send it to you. Almost certainly. And this is how we get games, so we can talk about them, and we appreciate everything we get. So, Absolutely. thank you, everyone. Now moving on to the feature game of the week, which is Babylonia by, what's, the, uh, Riener <sighs> That's funny. That's funny stuff. That's, com- that's, that's comedy. It's always the same joke. One. I know. <laughs> I'm... All
3: right. Who's this guy? I've never heard of him. I've never he's, heard of him. Maybe he's got a bright he's, future he's ahead some, of him.
2: Some sort of doctor. Yeah. <laughs> Thankfully, I only do with one designer. Anyway, it's Reiner Canizia, Babylonia, and it's a tile-laying game. It is. We've talked about a couple of those already. It's true.
3: This would normally be the part of the review where I try to contextualize the release in the context of a designer's career, often with reference to a couple of major releases that they put out. I can't really do that with Reiner Canizia. I will say that it is a recent release from Reiner Canizia, and it is one of the heaviest recent releases that he's ever done in terms of rules weight. Knizia for a long time has mostly just put out either intro or family or lightweight games. uh, Lots of mobile games, lots of Reskinnings of other games or slightly uh, messed around versions now some of these have been worthy some of these have been very good releases like for example i really like lost cities rivals i think it's a very good design amun Ray the card game i think is a really good interesting design despite the fact that it is amun Ray with some of the raw elements grafted onto it and then some something shaved off i think they're great games and i'm certainly willing to play them at any time but in terms of original games that may be evocative of other things, but clearly not strictly derivative of other things that are solidly pitched at, say, medium light to medium white. Renegade doesn't do many releases like that anymore, which is fine. As we constantly bemoan, that's not really where the market is now anyway. So he's either he's not driven to make releases like that, or it's not marketable to make releases like that. So Babylonia was a little bit of an outlier. In that it is kind of a return to form of the kind of weight and overall situation that he used to churn out reliably in the late 90s. And that's one of the reasons why I was initially interested to pick up Babylonia. So that's about as much context as I I can give in the the midst of a decades-long career that is incredibly prolific. So Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what one does in Babylonia?
2: In Babylonia, you do what you do in a lot of uh, Reiner Knizia games. The actions are dead simple, but the strategy and everything else is there. Like in Babylonia, you're you're during your turn, you have one action, and that is laying down tiles. You're either laying down two nobles or three farmers, and you get to put them wherever you want. And it's just that much butter. That's just what Reiner Knizia does. Everything is always so smooth. But the proof is in the pudding. You like all these, you like all these words. Is there butter in the pudding? There's butter. There's everything in there, Mark. It's just, I just, it's so he's boiled these the system down so well. It just plays so well. Like I said, because it's all about where you are putting them. It's not all tied up in how well you manipulate the mechanisms. It's just how well you use them. There's almost never any system mastery in
3: Ryan and designs. There's never serious hurdles to overcome in terms of internalizing what you're doing now sometimes his scoring mechanisms get a little bit cumbersome and i'll be talking with that actually in comparing babylonia to some of his other tile lane games but that is not the case in babylonia there are a couple subtleties that you have to wrap your head around about triggering the timing of scoring various things and the fact that placing on water next to a city will not influence when it scores but will influence how it scores as opposed to all the other things but you're absolutely right in terms of length of rules explanation to quality of decision making. It is absolutely like other Rainer Knizia games in that it is very much on the right side of the of the ratio.
2: And that is one part of the game when you, when you get a hand of of tiles, you have either farmers or nobles, and I think that's a there's a huge decision space when it's your turn. It's is it time to lay down the nobles or play the farmers? Like spread out. Because there's the farmers don't score, but they allow you to connect a lot more, whereas the nobles are going to be scoring you points. Well, the farmers can score around ziggurats. They can. Which
3: actually reminds me an awful lot. The, the game that Babylonia reminds me the most of, and I don't want to over-belabor this comparison, because it's very, very common when your catalog is as deep as Reiner Knizia's to over-exaggerate the connections, even when they don't exist. And this, again, especially is true when, when he's always releasing, you know, X the card game or X the dice game or, or whatever. But it feels an awful lot like Samurai to me because Samurai was the tile laying game that he that he designed that was mostly about surrounding things. I and mean, these things scored when they got surrounded. And similarly in Samurai, rarely, but it was very advantageous when you could do it, you could play two tiles rather than one. Similarly in Babylonia, knowing when you get to place three farmers as opposed to two of anything can be very, very crucial. And it It involves something that otherwise is very, very lacking in Babylonia, which is surprise, because everything proceeds at a very, very constant pace. Everyone's just placing two tiles, placing two tiles, a couple points here, a couple points there, which is one of my misgivings about Babylonia. More on that later. But the moments when someone has been saving the three farmers... Because three farmers out of a five-tile hand is... It's, it's not super hard to do. There are lots of farmers in your available tile supply. But it's certainly not something you can do whenever you choose to. But those turns when you place three farmers, if you're able to execute it properly, can have a serious impact on the game.
2: Yeah. there's Like you said, there's many paths to victory. And that's what I had in my... What I was going to say in the intro as well is the fact that you pretty well have to stick to a scoring strategy, I think, in this game. Because if you try to... If you try scoring strategy and you try to break away from that, I think, I think you're not going to win. It's like you have to decide whether or not you're going to do big chains or surround the ziggurats, or you're going to try to get a, a large group of cities that hit scoring every time. I think if like that's the end of my point is the fact that if you start a strategy, you have to keep with it for the whole game because if you try to suddenly diversify, I think you're going to be too far behind.
3: I don't know, but <sighs> I don't know if I would situate it in terms of diversification being a problem per se, because the times when I've been most successful in Babylonia have been when I have diversified. But you're right, it has been because I consciously chose to relatively early on. It doesn't really allow for for lots of end game course correction, which again is one of one of my problems with Babylonia. I feel like often in Babylonia, about certainly two thirds of the way through the game, but possibly even sometimes halfway through the game, you can look at the board and figure out who's going to win. Because, as I say, even though there are these lovely little moments of surprise when people play out Three Farmers to great effect, usually it's a game of incrementalism, and the scores are going to be very high, upwards of 100 points usually, but you score a few here, a few there, and those times when you score big, when a city scores and you score 20 points, the writing has been on the wall for quite some time about that. Which is actually, although that's a problem, it does actually emphasize one of the ways in which Babylonia is... Interestingly different from a lot of other Euro tile layers and even a lot of other Knitsa tile layers, there's not really infrastructure, but there's kind of this notion of investment in that your nobles, when played well, will score several times. It's different from, say, Tigers and Euphrates, where a tile will tile will definitely score once and you want it in the future to protect your given placements. And it is certainly different from a lot of other games, where it says, well. I place this and I score, and then that's it. The tile is effectively done in terms of my scoring. To do well, you need those tiles to score several times over, and that I I, I actually enjoy. You really care about those placements, and it, it drives a lot of the geographical considerations.
2: Yeah, it, it drives the player interaction as well, right? Because you want this these chains to continue. You need them all to be connected, and it leads to that really interesting, you know, blocking mechanism. And, you know, if you can keep it within your strategy, you know, block when you can. And take over those areas. I think it, it it's a great game. The
3: blocking is good. I wish there were more of it. I compare it, and again, I, I'm sorry, compared to say something like Through the Desert, because just to back up, it's a hex grid, and hex games are fundamentally more difficult to block than with grid-based games. In a grid, it's very easy to block somebody. And the moment you do, it becomes very, very torturous to work around. That's one of the reasons why Tigris and Euphrates is so good, because you have to use all the tools at your disposal to try to overcome these traps and to lay traps in turn. But with hex grids, it's a little bit harder. And given that there are no other placement consideration in Through the Desert, you weren't allowed to place a camel of the same color adjacent to a camel of, of the same color. color. And that amplified your ability to block. And it made it so that you could block somebody at an opportunity cost, but not at a great one. So it was worth going out of your way to block people. In Babylonia, I feel that a lot less. Because it's really hard to completely close off a city. And usually, it, it most of the time feels like, well, they're so far away, they're not going to get there anyway. And it seems like more of a sunk cost. I, I wish the blocking were more substantial.
2: Yeah, definitely at the beginning of the game, it's not there. But near the end, when everything is getting tighter, it does happen a little more often. If somebody has taken something for granted, if someone has looked
3: at a city a few placements away where there's wide open fields, then yes, that that can happen. But to me, that's more of a timing consideration. Yeah. It's the notion that you can't take for granted that the city is going to score on your timetable it might score too early and you haven't connected it yet, which I suppose is a form of blocking. Okay, you've convinced me. That is a form of blocking. It's not a spatial blocking. It's more of a temporal blocking. You could get there eventually, but it just scores before you happen to get there. Fair enough. I retract some of my complaint about there not being enough blocking. And there is an
2: interesting thing. I didn't really see it come into play very often but once the city does score you remove the tile so it opens up like a new lane where you might be able to reconnect it it didn't really you know pan out but the fact that it's there is interesting
3: yeah the geography changes a little bit over the course of the game not a whole heck of a lot the other area that i i quite like because it's so different from where most of your points are going to come are the ziggurats every time you place next to a ziggurat you get one point for every ziggurat you're next to and, but, uh, you, you know, there are five ziggurats, so you may think, ooh, I could get to a place where every tile placement I do is worth five points. It's like, well, first of all, you had to work to get there, and secondly, in the context of a game where you're going to be scoring upwards of 100 points, not going to win you the game. It, it can be part of a successful strategy, but it's just, you know, in the context of everything else, it, it works out just fine. When a ziggurat is surrounded, someone might get a special power, and there are one shot special powers, and then there are recurring special powers. These aren't wild we're not talking about cosmic encounter level special powers here the one that i have a little bit of doubts about and i really i feel i feel so churlish and on such shaky ground trying to question anything related to balance in a Reiner knitzia design but it just seems like to me the take an extra turn tile because that's one of them that can be in the mix seems like an obvious choice because again this is a game with some compounding interest where tempo matters a lot and where you might not get to play out all your tiles because an end game condition is anyone has played out all their tiles. So taking an extra turn seems like the obvious thing to do, especially when in some cases, and I've seen this happen more than once, you surround a ziggurat, you get to claim the tile, you take the, take an extra turn, use it right away to surround another ziggurat, which then gives you another power on top of the points that you got all the other placements, which might score extraneously. So I'm not a huge fan of that effect on the game, net, net. And I've encountered a couple of players who swear up and down that it's broken and shouldn't be included. I'm not there yet. I just don't like its effect.
2: True. And it could be a timing thing as well. If I think the special power, some of them might be equally as powerful if you get them earlier in the game.
3: Possibly, but not in the sense of immediately then being able to snag another ziggurat, right? True. If you have an opportunity cost in terms of getting a power, like you have to take this power instead of another, and it could feed into other tempo considerations later, it's just those are less blunt than, I will now take another turn immediately to then claim another ziggurat right now.
2: <laughs> yeah. No, and definitely played out at the end where you had more tiles out on the board than everybody else. And I think I'm definitely on your page, sir. So I think the game is very smooth because like I already said, you just, you have one action. You put out tiles, whether it be three or two, you get to put them wherever you want. It all, the strategy is all from your own little head. I think it scales, it scales fantastic with different player counts. All they do is cut off parts of the map. I think it just plays just as well. And the end game scoring, I'm getting kind of, I've already said how much I hate hidden or, you know, tons of points at the end of the game or going through a huge rigmarole about adding up scores at the end of the game. This is, well, I've triggered the end of the game who's in the lead, you are, well, you've won, done, end of story, none of this big, you know, hidden, counting up tons of points at the end, it's just done. It's smooth,
3: it's clean, it plays well, it's pretty, it's easy to explain, and it moves at a good clip, and it's got lots of interesting scoring and tempo considerations. All of that having been said, and I thought about this very carefully, what this does is it puts it in contention to be possibly the sixth best Reiner-Kinitzia tile-laying game. Which is kind of damning with faint praise, but also kind of a good distinction. So, if you've already played Tigers Phrase to death, and th- Stevenson's Rocket, and Through the Desert, and Samurai, and Blue Lagoon, the recent release by Blue Orange, then I think Babylonia will be right up your alley. Because... All of those other designs, I think, are superior in, indeed, many of the same ways. Very clean, very approachable. They scale well. Eh, Some of them scale a little less less well. Babylonia does scale better than some of them. uh, All those other Tile-Lane games have some of the virtues that I've said were lacking in Babylonia. Like, for example, there are bigger moments in some of those other games, big consequential moments. You feel that the scores are a little less diffuse- then uh, Babylonian, most of those instances, not a whole lot of, well, two points here, five points here, six points here, and by the end you get over 100, which again feeds into that notion of of, of not of not having big moments. It sounds like I'm being down on Babylonian, to a certain extent I am, but this I don't think should be your entrance into the world of Reiner Knizia Tiling Games. I mean, you could do worse. But I think that this is very much for people who very much already appreciate his of and like watching Reiner Knudsi iterate on other tile-laying ideas. It's very, very good, but not, I think, great. And in a catalogue of work that includes many great tile playing games, that can lead it to be feeling almost frustratingly, cuspily inadequate.
2: Yeah, but when it's put into that field of those fantastic games... It still is heads and above so many others.
3: No, that is absolutely true. It's just, in particular, uh, to a large extent, what I'm motivated by saying this is because we have had a very good reprint of Stevenson's Rocket, which was an underappreciated Reiner Knizia tile-laying masterwork. The recent excellent release of Blue Lagoon by Blue Orange Games, which I think, although it falls a little bit into the other problem of modern Euro design, the scoring conditions are a little bit head scratching it's like okay uh, you get points for set collection and you also get points for forming a chain and etc and that isn't awesome but it's nonetheless has this lovely uh two stage progression where first you settle islands and then you expand out from huts that part is great and really helps break up the tempo and means that who is going to win is very much a factor of how you can balance these two different phrases, so you don't look at the scoring track and figure oh well we know how this is going to end yeah, I, I agree. It's, it's hard to review a game like Babylonia and give it its full justice because it's very enjoyable and very compelling. And I can think of five games by the same designer that do the same thing better.
2: <laughs> and that is Babylonia by Reiner Knizia.
3: Thank you very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can reach Walker via his email, justroll dice at gmail.com. You can reach me, Mark Bigney, on Twitter at TheGamesYouLike. For more public discussion, you can find the So Very Wrong About Games Facebook page, or you can check out our Board Game Geek Guild, which is guild number 3236, and you can find us on Patreon. We read everything you send us, and we will get back to you if we can. Thanks again for tuning in, and we hope to see you again soon. Peace! You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com, or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much, see you next time, and always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong